Hello, all, and welcome back to another episode of the Strategic Whimsy Experiment. My name is Jennifer Hahn, and I'm Sarah Callen. And the Strategic Whimsy Experiment is a weekly gathering place filled with conversations about the films that shape our lives. Today, we are going to be reviewing the film chosen by me from the, our Oscar wager, a little tradition that we do every year. And this year, we are going to be talking about The Shape of Water. All right, Sarah, do you want to kick us off with an IMDb summary for The Shape of Water? Sure. At a top-secret research facility in the 1960s, a lonely janitor forms a unique relationship with an amphibious creature that is being held in captivity. A unique relationship. Indeed. Yes. It is. Yes. <laughs> All right. So before we start off with our one-sentence summaries, uh, just some quick context on why The Shape of Water was chosen this year for the movie that we are going to watch. So this is a movie that um, came out a couple of years ago, I believe in 2017, and uh, got a ton of attention. I got a chance to watch it in theaters. It was quite an experience. It's a movie that I have felt conflicted about in certain aspects of it, and uh, one that Sarah and I have chatted about quite a bit a couple of times. Um, since Sarah, you have not watched this movie before, and just would be fascinating to hear your thoughts and your take on this very unique story. There's also some interesting aspects of this movie when it comes to our main protagonist and the fact that she signs for a lot of the movie. I'm intrigued to see how you feel about that. Uh, we've talked about in the past that you'll either, you'll have strong opinions on it either way, but this overall is, I think, a really well ex executed film it's immersive it does so much it has some interesting things to say there are aspects of this that i adore and other parts that i wish were different so i thought it would make for a, a very interesting conversation uh sometimes the movies that i've chosen so far for oscar wager have been torturous in the case of anomalisa or they've been fantastic classic films like the one that we watched last year the godfather and this is maybe a little mix of both. It doesn't fit in squarely into either category. It could go many different directions. So you get to talk about The Shape of Water today, and I'm excited to hear your thoughts. Yeah, this this was a good a good pick for sure. It, we, we've created a third category. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to label this category, but we've created a third distinct category uh, for Oscar wager movies to be put into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would call this category maybe just the question mark. There are so many things that I think mm -hmm. your thoughts and perspectives could go in very, very different directions. And uh, the curiosity got the better of me. So I had to do it. I also wasn't sure if this would be a film that we would get to talk about in quite many years um, into the future. So seize the opportunity get to watch it and talk that's about true it. that's true because many times you have started to talk about the shape of water over our friendship and gone oh wait you haven't seen that yet mm. <laughs> I'm like I know I need to watch it but I haven't watched it I don't know when I'll watch it mm -hmm. so it was it was long overdue so now we can yes. talk about all the things that you have wanted to talk about for years and had been unable to because I had not yet seen this movie <laughs> so this is a, an excellent use of the Oscar wager. Well done. Seize the opportunity. It's yeah. also fitting because one of the movies that we both adored from this past Oscar season was Nightmare Alley by Del Toro. And this is another Del Toro uh, film. So we're, we're on a Del Toro kick and uh, we'll see how this one ranks against the other. So we'll see. Okay, well, let's start off with our one-sentence summaries for The Shape of Water. Sarah, what was yours? Uh, mine is, no one, not even swamp creatures, can resist the magic of the movies. Oh, well done. Thanks. Well done. Thanks. That was a feel-good one. That was a warm and fuzzy one. I love it. <laughs> it also doesn't reveal much about how you felt about this movie. So. Exactly. Yep. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Uh, my summary is lizards have never been able to be so endearing. <laughs> Name another lizard that is this this uh, empath empathy inducing. 
I'll wait. <laughs> I don't know. You know, uh, I can't. Uh, yeah, I can't think of too many lizards. The the little like gecko guy. No, he wasn't a gecko. He was a chameleon in mm-hmm. Tangled. Was That's real cute. That's all I can join too. He yep. was cute. I don't know that I had a lot of empathy for him, but he, I, I was pleased <laughs> with him. I'm trying to think yep. like what other you oh okay nope uh, oh. the 20, 2014 Godzilla yep I have not watched this movie empathy inducing yes oh I felt for Godzilla in Godzilla wow I did I did so that is what I would bring to the table as my counter which is very surprising. <laughs> I think we need to have a movie off between The Shape of Water and Godzilla and really <laughs> have a, a full-on debate on why one side may believe that main character is more endearing than the other. Yep. I'm, I'm down. Yep. Let's do it. <laughs> these, are, these are the important things, the important issues of our time <laughs> to dive into. It also gives me an excuse to watch Godzilla again because I actually really enjoyed that movie. I was shocked by how much wow. I enjoyed that one. Wow. This is a movie that I will never watch unless there's a reason to. So, Well, now you have a reason. A lizard off seems You're like welcome. a fitting, fitting <laughs> occasion. I'm down. Although I would even argue that our uh, main romance lead in The Shape of Water could, could arguably be a lizard or a fish. But, you know, there, mm. there are just too many fish that have been endearing. I mean, hello, Finding Nemo. So, Oh, yeah. Not choose fish man, but lizard that's, man. That's true. I mean, <laughs> is is he maybe even like a merman? Oh, right, right. Yeah. I don't know that we've had Could a be. whole lot of endearing mermen. I mean, yeah, we've gotten... Because Triton like, and the Little Mermaid is kind of a about, That's where my brain went to. Until the end, and then he becomes, you know, the whole I right. love my daughter thing, let her go. Right. Uh, but up until that point, he is not great. Mm. Yep. And um, a lot of us have dealt with overbearing parents, so we know what that feels like. So it's kind of <laughs> pain as a villain. Yeah. Um, that's that's no. pretty much all I got for there I think, was a Yeah, oh, the world's been more fascinated with the female version. <laughs> uh, Aquamarine, the little mermaid. Yeah, we love our mermaids. The ones I in think- Peter Pan. I think there was a digital, uh, a Disney original movie. Oh no! About a a kid who who turned into a merman. Like he started like developing <gasps> like scales all over himself. <sighs> oh man, I can't even remember what it was called. But that's was this live other... action? Oh yeah, it? yeah. Oh no! It was a Disney original. Oh man, I'm gonna have to find it now and send it to you. I'm uh, intrigued. But that's the only other merman that I can think of. And he was like a mer, he was a mer teenager, but still uh, merman. Okay. Dang. Being a teenager is hard enough. I let know, alone, right? Oh, so this was like Luca, but live action. Kind of. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. I mean, Disney was pumping out some weird stuff when I was a kid. Their <laughs> right. Disney originals were kind of out there, but I had a great time with it. We've got quite a few more people. We could have a little bracket going, you know, have them face off <laughs> on empathy with scales. I, I like this. This is this is important. See, I knew we would have an interesting conversation when we talked about the shape of water. I knew. We're off to a great start. <laughs> okay, so right. it was called The 13th Year, and it is a 1999 wow. comedy drama Disney Channel original movie. Oh, it's a family <laughs> comedy. The 13th year. And the, the summary is, as a boy approaches adolescence, he grows scales and fins, communicates with fish, and breathes underwater. Oh, my. This is a terrible title. It is this pretty sounds bad. Like, this sounds like a, a horror thriller. <laughs> it is not. <gasps> oh, Although I'm, wait. I imagine it would be pretty horrific if you just started, like, growing scales. So... Maybe it is a horror movie, and I just didn't realize it when I was nine. Oh my gosh. This has like late 90s uh, mm-hmm. visual aesthetics all over it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This it's really is great. live action Luca. Wow. It is. 
This is some prime content. Yeah. Well, that's my childhood um, for you. You're welcome. This is some great candidates for future uh, Oscar wager movie <laughs> picks. I mean, wow. How could we How could we miss a classic like this, you know? I mean, it is. It's quite something. <laughs> Gosh, I have not watched this since I was a kid, so I can only imagine how bad it is. I would love to know how uh, youthful Sarah Callan felt about this movie when she watched it the first time around. You know, I honestly don't remember. I it was not one of my favorite Disney original movies. It, it was they had a lot of good ones. Tier. They did yeah. have a lot of good ones. Yeah, it was it was kind of mid tier for me, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> this is mid tier Disney Channel original movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I mean, Aquamarine is a is a classic. <laughs> true, true. It is. I guess, would we also consider Aquaman to be a merman? I have not seen Aquaman. Would he be included in this uh, bracket? I have not seen Aquaman. But you're not missing much. I mean, on attractiveness scale, I think uh, Aquaman (laughs) puts this uh, lizard man from The Shape of Water to shame. So, But not when it comes to empathy. Oh, okay. Lizard man is still winning on the the empathy empathy scale. All right. Yeah. Let's see if we can find anyone else that could dethrone him from this title. I don't think in the merman category. I don't think we can get there, but I still think Godzilla in the 2014 Godzilla. Can <laughs> the lizard category? In the lizard category. <laughs> also, we've just done like seven minutes on. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> There's a whole 15 minutes left in the end for us to debate actually which category he predominantly belongs into, whether it's fish, lizard, or merman. That's a whole another segment we can do. I'm just I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I don't I, I don't think I want to engage uh, in that. <laughs> Let me just formally opt out of that discussion point. Uh, we will actually have a special guest later on, <laughs> which is the uh, scientist from this movie. Perfect. Who will unpack yep. all of the different like biological aspects of that. Yes, he yeah. is much more qualified than I am. If you need obscure movie references, I got you. Biology? <laughs> no idea. Late 90s movie references. I got you. Disney yep. Channel originals? I Yes, I they watched all of them. <laughs> Again, I knew we would have a fascinating conversation <laughs> when I picked this movie. And I, so far, we're, we're doing great. We're doing Good. great. Good. I'm glad that you're pleased with this. I am very pleased. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, Sarah. Tell me about your thoughts about The Shape of Water. What did you expect going in? What were you preparing for? And ultimately, what did you think about this movie? Well, okay. So I was uh, nervous going into this because I knew that the main character in this signed, uh, but the actress playing her is hearing. So I assumed that because she signed, she was a deaf character being played by a hearing person. And I was just ready to be really, really bothered by that. I was prepared to be annoyed. Um, But she's not deaf. And so I went, oh, okay. I don't have to be angry (laughs) at this movie anymore. (laughs) I can just, I can just watch it and and be okay. Like I don't, I don't have to be fine because she's not playing a deaf person. Um, And so that kind of took some of the pressure off of me to be annoyed. Um, I, I don't know. I I enjoyed this movie. Uh, I was not blown away by it. I so I loved the score, loved all of the the sets and the production design and the cinematography. I think was absolutely beautiful. It was like very immersive, like you said. I just didn't really care about any of the characters. So maybe that's also why I think Godzilla <laughs> was more empathetic because I empathize more mm-hmm. with him than swamp creature in this um i think so i was i was tracking with the movie until probably about two-thirds of the way through uh do we need to include spoilers in this i don't i don't know what is a spoiler at this point for this movie (laughs) well you've thought about it so yeah this is this is the this is effectively our spoiler alert yeah we can talk about full reign of this movie now so i i was tracking with it until he heals 
uh, Giles's wound and then like makes his hair regrow on his head mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and Swamp Thing turned blue like or he glowed blue like mm-hmm. it, up until that point I was tracking with it and then uh, at that point I went huh I don't I don't know that I can get behind this anymore so I don't know that with the characters just not being all that interesting to me I I just I kind of struggled with that piece of it, even though it's beautiful and it, it, the, the score is probably my favorite part of the entire movie. Uh, I just, I couldn't fully go where this movie was asking me to go. And so the ending just was kind of like, Oh, okay. Now we're done. Great. Like, I, I don't think I, I felt at the end of the movie what I was supposed to feel about these two. I, yeah, I don't know. So it was, it was fine, but I didn't, I didn't love it. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting choices that this, this film makes. I think that the first half is probably the strongest parts of it. And oh, then yeah. there's a lot that when the relationship between Eliza and uh, this lizard man begins to develop that I think is in line with the fact that this is uh, supposed to be a fantasy and um, is teed up to be that way. But I think the point is already made enough by that point around the, the connection that they have being that they feel in a lot of ways shut off from this established world that has been created that they're they are operating in. And you see that with a lot of the, the side characters and the side plots of this movie. Um, this is the second time I've gotten to watch The Shape of Water. The first time around, I I loved just the, the world that Del Toro creates and this, this fantastical, almost storybook type of experience where we are no longer in our um, – we're not even in the past. I mean, this is set in like the, what, the 50s? Like we're not in the a realistic version of the past. We're in some other world entirely. But uh, there's a lot about the the way that the ending unfolds and the relationship between Eliza and the swamp creature that just, it was, it was hard to swallow for me personally. Um, so I felt very conflicted about this movie. There's stuff that just is done so well. Um, and there's other aspects that I feel like I had to wrestle with. Watching this a second time around, I think what is most interesting to me that I did not remember is the opening sequence of this movie and the way that it frames and sets up the rest of this story as truly this like uh, this legend or this fairy tale. Um, it, it reminds me a lot of like old Disney princess movies where they have like the storybook opening and there's this narration that starts with the once upon a time and then we kind of go into the story. Uh, this opening sequence uses that same framing device and it sets up these two motifs of what we know as the princess and what the voiceover calls as the princess, which is Eliza. And it sets up the idea of the monster that almost tore that apart. And that monster motif is kind of interesting. Like the the questions are like, who is the monster by the end of this movie? Um, I think is reframed from the way that the, the film originally starts to set up our expectations about that in the first third of this. So I think having that framing going into this movie helped me uh, suspend a lot of um, just judgments that I would typically have or like things that are just hard to get behind. But you're like, oh, it's f-. like we are in a fantastical world. And I need to recalibrate my mind to, with those expectations. I found this the second time around that the opening sequence played a big role in that feeling a lot more effective than – I just didn't remember that the first time around. It's probably just gearing up, get my popcorn ready, you know, like – and didn't pay attention to that piece as much. But I think that framing really helped this movie a lot. And I, I really love, you know, how how much the – production design also lends itself to that because everything looks different than it did even in the 60s you know there there are moments when you I mean you obviously know that this is in the past but it's this different version of the past and even the way 
that the camera would move, it made me at times think that we were watching like a musical rather than just a traditional movie. And so I think even that camera movement um, aided in us being able to maybe suspend our disbelief just a little bit more uh, to be willing to go on this very unusual journey that Guillermo del Toro takes us on. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the production design, everything about even the, the, that hallway and the apartment that, uh, Eliza lives in with her next door neighbor, um, above this like larger than life, glitzy, glamorous, but slightly like worn movie theater as well. Um, all points this like, uh, just larger than life aspects that we are, we are dramatizing, we are creating a a world that is unlike our own and one that we are unfamiliar with. Um, Tell me more about your thoughts on the the camera movement and it feeling like a musical. That's fascinating. Yeah, I I think there were just moments and maybe it's because we, we see, you know, Giles watching, you know, old musicals as well. So you go from watching an old musical and then just the way that the camera would move like so smoothly sometimes. It, it made me think of mm. some of like the the old like dance numbers that you would see and how how a camera would like circle those things or move along with the actors in a very like fluid way. Um, mm-hmm. It just, it, it it made me think like, oh, we're in a, we're in a different world. You know, there's not any of these like really um, like, you know, like shaky cam or like any of these other like things Mm. that you would normally see in, you know, maybe a movie about like a creature. Um, But instead everything is very fluid and smooth. And it just, it made me think of, of the Mm. musical. Mm That was something that uh, was surprising to me that I did not remember from the first time around watching this is how much there is a strong motif around movies and cinema and theaters and um, the way that those are constantly integrated into our lives. It's, you know, in Guile's apartment, there's the TV is always on and they are marveling at these fantastical uh singers or dance sequences or movie moments and there's a whole black and white little song sequence where she sings and dances the creature in this movie i did not remember any of that but again calls back to that um old hollywood uh you know golden era musicals that were larger than life and told these big sweeping stories much like the one that we are seeing unfold on screen uh, and then Eliza and um, this lizard man's world. Like this is a a fairy tale romance that is this big and fantastical that we are also getting to see. But we see our characters uh, really feel inspired and um, moved by those moments as well. And yeah, that the the movies and the cinema motif is like intertwined into so many aspects of this movie um that was surprising to me I did not remember that and I I found that particularly interesting given that we recently watched Belfast that I think tried to do something similar um you know showcasing the magic of the theater um but I feel like The Shape of Water just did it better and I was more captivated by that. And and the the movies themselves that they were watching in Shape of Water, like you said, like directly influenced the plot. And it's almost like we're watching these like parallel mm. tracks, you know, all yeah. of these famous musicals where where they they get together in the end and live happily ever after. We're watching that unfold with our protagonists in real time right now. So every movie that's played. Uh, has something to say about the plot. So I think that that, that reoccurring theme worked really, really well uh, in, in not only helping to move the plot forward, but I know for me, it, it also helped me stay in this more like fantastical sort of mind rather than 
I mean, obviously, like my, my, I can only suspend my disbelief so far. And uh, we mm. cross that threshold at a point. But, mm-hmm. you know, for the first two thirds of the movie, that really helped me stay engaged and stay willing to, to go where this movie is wanting to go. Yeah, and it, it's also used, like you mentioned, to be character revealing moments for our main few characters that we are beginning to be invested in. Um, I think it makes Eliza's desire to connect with this lizard man that she discovers, you know, at her workplace, um, a, a little bit more understandable as well because she brings the same pieces of music that she's captivated on screen to him. Uh, she is She dreams of this type of connection and romance and and all of that the same way that she's gotten to watch that on screen but always felt like it was out of reach for her or beyond her grasp or just not possible for someone like her and when this creature that she feels connected with finally comes along like it 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 feels more understandable that she might begin to dream of what it could be like to 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 actually have that movie moment or that movie magic in her own life um, it was interesting to watch that unfold, but I think it helps us, uh, stomach a lot of what this movie is asking us to, to go on this ride with it and, um, just give ourselves over to it a little bit more because we can see that our, our character has been shaped by these movie moments and may actually desire that for herself as well. And I mean, like, the guys in this world must have just sucked. Like your best option is like lizard dude who (laughs) you can't like speak with, you know, like Mm it's just how, Oh, that's, that's pretty rough. If your best choice is lizard man. Like, yeah. Wow. (laughs) That's slim pickings out there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Poor Eliza. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. There's interesting. I think, in commentary that this movie tries to have on um, people groups that have been often forgotten or oppressed or pushed to the wayside and just not given the same opportunities or access to participate in society the same way that others have had the privilege to. I, I'm curious your thoughts about how this movie handles things like um, sexuality and race and misogyny and all of that. I mean, we see some pretty blatant uh, aggressions that are racist in nature, that are homophobic in nature. And I think this movie is looking to comment on it. I I actually think it's a little bit heavy handed, but the spirit of what it's trying to communicate and for most of the protagonists that we're following in this movie are people that have experienced oppression historically is an interesting choice that this movie is looking to make. They could have had many other different types of people be Eliza's uh, friends and allies and supporters in this movie and the choices that this movie has, um, I think, communicate a lot. I'm curious your thoughts on how those landed for you. No, I, I think it. I think that is one of my favorite things about this movie as well. And, and just the fact that our main protagonist doesn't speak. And so that gives more time for some of these other uh, secondary characters to be able to speak more. And I, I really loved that piece of it. That's a, that's a really fascinating creative choice that I really enjoyed. Um, I mean, Zelda honestly was my favorite character out of everybody. There were so many times uh, while watching that I would have a thought in my head and then she would say exactly what I was thinking. And I was like, yes, somebody in this movie is paying attention and thinking things through. This is amazing. <laughs> she, she was just my favorite. I could have watched a whole movie with just Zelda and I would have been so pleased with myself. Um, but I, I love that uh, it's, you know, this closeted gay man and this black woman are the two who really, you know, embrace Eliza and learned sign language so that she can communicate with them. And I, I just love that, that these two people who have been oppressed for their lives, their entire lives have, have come together to 
be this woman with a disability, her whole community. And I just thought that that was something really, really special and beautiful. At times, I do think it was a little heavy handed as well. But on the whole, I really enjoyed that choice, uh, especially given that this is set in the 1960s. So this was a hard time for all of those groups, you know, I mean, one could argue it's still a hard time for all of those groups today, but especially in the 60s, it was very, very bad. And so it was just, it was wonderful to see those three who had been maligned and mistreated to come together to form their own community and to support one another. And I, I loved that. I thought that was a great choice. It was a really great choice for this type of movie too. I mean, it's a it's a a casting choice or a, or a screenwriting choice that could have been written differently. I mean, the the movie and it's like core, I guess, if, if we're thinking about this like relationship and unfolding with this uh, lizard man as as like a core piece of it, um, can still stand. But I I think the movie gives a lot of time as you mentioned, to the side characters and their development as well. And I think it makes for a much richer story than how to be focused only on this love story that unfolds. Honestly, my memory, that's what I've remembered most. And I didn't realize how much time we get with the side characters and some of these side plots. Um, even moments and and the development of uh, the scientist, uh, I forget his name, um, but uh, he's the one that is playing a Russian spy as well. Um, we get a lot of time with that character as well and kind of the conversion Hello. that he makes from seeing this whole uh, project as purely a job to truly beginning to care for uh, this lizard creature and to ultimately put his own life at stake and make those sacrifices to help uh, save him. Uh, you could, I mean, I think part of it is he's a scientist and there's this, this aspect of his craft that he, he sees this being destroyed. But I think there's something about the humanity that he sees in that creature that also has tugged on his heartstrings and moved him to uh, really align with these other uh, three characters as well. And that was fascinating to see unfold. Um, there's, there, and all of those four side plots all intertwine together uh, to really add to this main storyline. All right, so we talked a little bit about these side storylines and these other characters that are part of Eliza's uh, community and little family, uh, which I think we 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 really appreciated. But I think one one aspect of this movie that I remember feeling the first time around watching this and it was just more confirmed for me the second time around was the character um, of Strickland played by Michael Shannon. I mean, he's, he's kind of the classic toxic masculinity, racist, uh, misogynist character. That's incredibly violent and aggressive. You know, the white male that we've seen in many other types of movies. And I wished that he had been a little bit more, of a nuanced character. He's kind of just this really awful, repulsive beast that just like stalks around for the entire length of the movie. And he's a little bit one dimensional. And I think had they had given him more di- uh, dimension and a little bit more nuance to him, I think there could have been a uh, better point made around the type of character that we've seen archetypes for so many times in the past. And I think he's kind of the main villain in this movie. And had he been a little bit more complex, I think it could have added more to the story as well. So I'm curious your thoughts about Michael Shannon, Strickland, that whole component of this movie, which really plays a pretty big part uh, in this movie storyline. What are your thoughts? Yeah, he's so gross. Like that that moment in the bathroom where he goes on his speech about like you either wash your hands before or after and any man who (laughs) washes his hands both times is weak of character. I was like, Oh no, we're going to have a problem because you do not value healthy, like sanitary practices. Mm -hmm. So this was always going to be an issue. It's Um, also just illogical. (laughs) 
it's just it's so gross I'm like no why does this make sense wrong (laughs) the rules that in your world do not make sense for the rest of the world (laughs) what a mess um but I you know what I didn't mind his one dimensionality um Mm. because it's supposed to be this like fairy tale uh I I think the choice of him being Ah. just awful makes perfect sense and like lends itself Mm. to that um because I think there's already so much going on in the film I think if he were a more nuanced villain it would have been too much going on um because I, I don't think that the film had enough time to really devote to making his character more nuanced. I think that he just needed to be evil and the worst. And, and we didn't need a lot to know that he was the worst and, and to root against him. And I, I think even that was helpful for me because I wasn't necessarily rooting for Eliza and Swamp Creature. Mm. But because I was rooting against Strickland and he was against them, it made me empathize with them a little bit more because, you know, what is it? The enemy of my enemy is my friend, that whole thing. So I I think actually him being as evil as he was, was a helpful foil for me to be more interested in characters that otherwise I probably wouldn't have cared about all that much. Interesting. So actually, because this was set up to be more of a fantasy and a fairy tale that he plays the role of the evil witch or the big bad wolf or you know just the the primary antagonist and you didn't need more you didn't need more dimension from him mm-hmm. yeah he he did what he needed to do he was gross and the mm-hmm. worst and he he did that effectively mm-hmm. and you see also the way that that's passed down uh, through the chain of command and the way that that his his higher up, I think his name was General Ho- Hoyt, um, was also the same way. And it just, it breeds more of that toxic masculinity that just continues to seep down the chain of command. I thought that was really interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that that was a super interesting point. Um, you know, what it has to say about not only toxic masculinity, but also, you know, uh, touching on our government and and how some of those chains of command really highlight like the worst in us. Um, and it wasn't a matter of like doing what's right or wrong, you know, being humane wasn't important. It was just about getting things done and how devastating that kind of like black and white thinking can be. Uh, when all you care about is results at the expense of everything else. So I think, you know, without going too deeply into it, the film kind of offered us that train of thought on a silver platter, which was kind of nice to walk down. Yeah, I appreciated that aspect of this. I think a lot of times in movies that that touch on similar types of characters or motifs, you know, this idea of... uh, something that is cast as the other and our uh, disregard of treating that other with respect or with integrity or seeing the humanity in them. Like we've, we've seen that, I think, type of storyline told again and again. And oftentimes I think that there's just this, this evil character that just has it out for them and is violent and aggressive. But it was interesting to see a lot of that framed in the context of this political conflict uh, with the Soviet Union and the space race and that being the primary motivator for a lot of the decisions they make when it comes to the lizard fish man. Um, they're, they're not inflicting abuse and violence on this creature for the sake of it, which I think we've sometimes seen in other types of films, but there's, there's this other motivation that they have and the lizard creature is kind of the byproduct and receiving the, the pain from it at the expense of um, this larger purpose that they have. And so it's it's an interesting idea around like when we have this uh, singularity of goal or vision or results, like you've mentioned, that it can crowd out our ability to really be able to stop and have empathy and see the other people and things around us um, 
with the empathy, empathy and humanity that they deserve. Like that, that narrowness of, of dedication to a mission or a goal that just we kind of get tunnel vision. And it's an interesting idea that this movie kind of teases out a little bit. And I, I really appreciated the time that we got with the Soviets and Dr. Hofstadler. Like that to me was also a very fascinating component of this whole movie, especially because, you know, these, these moments in the lab or, you know, these moments with the military or the, the Soviet spies, you know, they, they feel like such a sharp contrast with this like artistic fantasy musical world that Eliza and Giles are in. So I just loved that we got to see these two very, very different points of view and these, I mean, honestly, these two different worldviews and these two different styles kind of colliding in this really like overly dramatized, overly glossy world that Guillermo del Toro has created. And anytime we were in the lab or with Dr. Hofstadler, I was like, wow, like I, I wouldn't have thought that like military or science would make sense in this kind of like fantastical musically world. Like I never would have thought to combine those things into one, but it made things so much more interesting because I didn't expect it. So I, I just, I thought that that was a really fun piece that they didn't really need to include. I mean, like political espionage, like that's just, I mean, who thought that we had the time for that in this movie? But it actually adds a really interesting component to this that, uh, you know, it's it's not just about this love story, if you, if you want to call it that, um, or this fairy tale, <laughs> but there are some like actual like, real world implications in this fake fantasy world uh, that were also interesting to consider. The the geopolitical side of things uh, had me very intrigued. Yeah, it's almost as if those 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 sequences where we 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 see the larger context that this love story is unfolding in helps keep us a little bit more grounded. Um, keeps this story from being a little bit too fantastical and a little bit too cutesy and helps us still have a little bit of that grit that makes some of those romance sequences uh, feel that much more beautiful because it's such so in contrast to this other larger gritty world that we know the characters belong to. Um, so it plays those those aspects together really well. It's very true. Would you would you call this romance beautiful? <laughs> I just I couldn't I couldn't go there. I know that the film wanted me to go yeah. there, and I just I couldn't get there uh, to each his own. But also, I just I I couldn't go there with Swamp Creature. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's uncomfy. It's uncomfy. I think. That's why I love the first half or the first mm -hmm. part of them yeah. coming together because I think it's purely just connection. Like they see that there is some someone like them and that is taking the time to care for them and to see them. And that's really beautiful. Uh, it escalates from there. And that was a little bit harder to swallow. Um there, I think, in general, is this uh, these sexual undertones that are are so apparent from the beginning of the movie. Even when we meet Eliza, like she is not our ordinary, innocent little princess character that we've typically seen in the past. Like she is a woman, and yeah, it was it. Ah, uh, yeah, it was hard for me to get there as well. That's the part that made me feel a little uncomfy. Um, but I don't think this movie and this story can work when it just stays in the context of their connection. I think for them to really land home this larger-than-life fantastical fairy tale uh, essence, they've got to fall in love. And we have to get that final shot with them, like, intertwined together in the water. Like it, and it's got to have those romantic undertones. So I can't even say that I wish that wasn't a part of this because it's the core of a lot of what makes this story work, too. But, yeah, it's... It's interesting. It's interesting indeed. What were your thoughts on it? 
Well, you know, I just, this, this is uh, your Oscar wager pick, your third one. Uh, and so we have a woman having sex with some, with a swamp creature in this or lizard man or whatever we want to call him in your first Oscar wager movie pick, we had a claymation <laughs> sex scene. So we've had, you know, quite a gamut of interesting sex scenes in your Oscar wager movie picks. Right. And, uh, they've been quite eclectic, uh, sometimes unexpected. And, uh, yeah, I'm... I'm intrigued if you win a fourth time, uh, what you will be able to find because you've made some bold choices so far uh, with mm-hmm. the romances that we've watched. And uh, I'm a little nervous for if you win the fourth year. <laughs> yeah, we went from that to uh, uh, The Godfather, which mm-hmm. is very, very different in nature. Very different. Uh, but, yes. I think, but, I, but I think that still... It's it it's an interesting thing to grapple with. I mean, if we think about like the like what is it about, for example, I think the design of this creature, for example, that that needs to be specific enough for it to feel beastly or surprising in when we first meet this character, but by the end, we we are no longer seeing it the same way as we were first introduced to it and everything down to like the way that the eyes on this creature are designed and the gold uh it almost looks like gold leaf on his skin like those were such intentional choices and when you think about the premise of this movie uh a woman falls in love with a swamp swamp creature the design of that swamp creature has to be uh, straddle that line between entirely otherworldly, but also um, somehow magical and endearing enough that by the end we can get on board with that. And that is such a difficult task. Like the first time we meet this creature, and by the end, our, our feelings towards it are very different. And I just thought, was from an artistic perspective, it's a fascinating challenge to figure out how to design the creature, how it stands, how it walks, how it moves to straddle both those objectives throughout the course of this movie and to have our feelings also change towards it. Um, it's a really unique challenge visually to try and accomplish. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's an incredibly ambitious project. And, uh, you know, I I don't think that I felt really any type of way toward lizard man. I don't know. I, the whole thing was just too weird for me, but um, yeah, I, I, I think for me at least like those moments, I, I didn't feel a lot toward their like relationship and their romance, but I felt more for him, you know, like when he's being like tortured in this lab, you know, then I was like, Oh my gosh, he needs to be free. But I think I guess maybe for me, like I was most bothered by them keeping him in a tub for so long. And just like there was this exchange between uh, Eliza and Giles, I think, where he's like, can we just like keep him longer? And I yelled at the TV, no, you need to set him free. Like what is wrong with you? So I think in my mind, I wasn't invested in their relationship. I was more invested in him being free and being in the land that he should be in. You know, that was more of what I was interested in. So I guess for me, I was viewing him more as a creature than a man. Uh, And so maybe that's why I couldn't get as into their relationship, maybe as I was supposed to be, because I, I wanted this creature to be able to go and swim free and be with his, I don't know if there's others like him, but if he has a family, I wanted him to go be with his family, you know, that whole thing. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I couldn't get into their, their whole romance thing. <laughs> couldn't do it. I couldn't make the leap. It's a big leap. It's a big leap it's, to make. It's a yeah. very big leap. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think what's interesting is a line that she says pretty, I would say like maybe around the halfway point where she's, she's begging Giles to come and help essentially start the lizard man heist sequence. Um, and 
he he is pushing back on her and she says the line of like uh you're calling he says to her you're calling it a thing and she kind of communicates back to him like what am i like i am not that much different from him granted there are a lot of differences but that idea of the thing that she and him have in common is how much they've been overlooked how disconnected they feel from um the place or the environment that they are in and that people may not take the time and effort to really understand them fully enough. Like, I think that's an interesting uh, tee up for why, first of all, why they've, they've designed Eliza's character to be the way that she is, to be a mute woman who um, essentially have to adapt to this environment, the world that she lives in and, that other people need to take the time to really be able to communicate with her and to hear her where she can hear everything around her. Um, that sense of distance and isolation, uh, I think is unique to her character and explains so much of why she specifically is the one that falls in love with or builds this connection with this lizard man because she is, she, she's experienced that herself and is able to take that time and to give that over to him. Uh, by seeing him, by understanding him, by not judging him, you know? And I think that's a really beautiful aspect of this story that unfolds. Um, She could have been just any, like, princess type of character, but she is specifically uh, the way that she is and the experiences that she has that has given her the empathy to really connect with this creature that everyone else has overlooked entirely. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that she has so much empathy because uh, it would have been really easy for, you know, this character after being overlooked and misunderstood and called all sorts of names all throughout her mm-hmm. life to become really, really hard and really, really jaded. And uh, she she didn't. And, and her empathy is probably her greatest strength, which is a really fun thing to include uh in this protagonist for sure and Mm -hmm. i mean the film does do a really good job like laying the groundwork to get us to this place with their romance uh it does a great job at it 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 sets it all up very well i just couldn't make the leap yeah no that's fair that's fair i think it's a (laughs) a very screenplay does yeah leap yeah. The screenplay yeah. does its job. It it does it hits all the points that it needs to for us mm-hmm. to take that leap and we're just walking up the cliff and I just stopped at the edge while other people <laughs> leapt across. That's great. <laughs> you were like, I'm I'm good here. That's, that's yeah, great. I'm fine. I'll just yep. I'll walk back down myself. <laughs> we're good. But <laughs> it it kind of intertwines with a previous point that we were making around the other supporting characters and the specific ways that those characters have been designed because the the thing that the, uh, both the creature and these Giles, Zelda and Eliza have in common is that they have been seen as other by most of society. They have been pushed aside, overlooked, seen as not human in the ways that have been defined by the established society in the world that they're living in in the 50s and 60s. And it kind of forces, I think, you as the viewer to also beg the question of like, who have we seen as other that we need to stop and and think about and reconsider? And I mean, you see so many, you see this this happen with the scientist as well in his transformation. He's, I think at the beginning of the movie, truly saw this creature as a project and an asset and something to experiment on and try to understand and at some point along the way he has he has also seen this this creature as um worthy of some kind of integrity and respect and and he is willing to help them um basically like uh steal him from the the facility and save him uh from being killed at the expense of his own essentially his own life and i think it's it's an interesting intertwining of all those all those pieces together and the larger points that it's trying to make. I think what's what's so interesting is 
I could I could argue that the scientist is the only character that changes from the beginning of the movie to the end. Um, I mean, obviously, like Eliza, like physically changes, but as a character, she does not like her character does not change. I think that scientist is the only one whose character changes from the beginning to the end. And he, I mean, Zelda was my favorite, but he was the one that I was probably the most interested in learning more about. And anytime he was on screen, I was like, oh, I want to know more about you. And I think that's the reason is because he changes so much from the beginning to the end, which is kind of fascinating because he's a secondary character. Uh, And he, I mean, he's very integral to the plot, but he is not one of the, he's not even the main secondary character. And so I think even that's really interesting that he is the one with the most clear character change uh, more than the protagonists. And that's just, it's a, it's an interesting choice from a, from a screenplay perspective. Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, You're right. Eliza doesn't change that much. Uh, Giles, you could say, has a little bit of a transformation where he's a little bit more harder and colder, um, and he he, he softens mean, he, throughout the film. He has hair at the end too, so I mean that's right. A, that's, that's a, a big, big thing. That's a game changer <laughs> in his life. <laughs> it really is. It's <laughs> exciting. Um, but I wonder if it's also because this is the this is that fairy tale storyline that um, it's more about the events that are unfolding and our characters mm-hmm. are these archetypes that are filling the roles of the pieces on the chessboard that are bringing us to our final conclusion. But yeah, it's an, it's an interesting observation. All right. We've talked about the score. I think briefly, you mentioned it was one of your favorite aspects of this movie. So good. It's incredible. The score Mm -hmm. is doing the most in this movie and is really the MPP to sell this magical world that we get to inhabit. Yeah. Tell me more about your thoughts on the score. Yeah. It just, because this is kind of like fairy tale musically, uh, you need a strong score. And uh, I think it's Alexander Despot, if I'm not mistaken. And he, I mean, is fantastic, but he pulls out all the stops in this. I think one of my favorite moments is during the heist scene and the the score is what makes it so exciting you know like I mean obviously like the cinematography and the camera work is very good but I realized that like uh like my heart was racing because of what the score was doing more than anything else and it's just yet another reminder of the importance of music and how it can move us uh, and make us feel things that uh, we might not be able to feel otherwise and I think this score is one of the most important things, uh, one of the most important components of this entire movie. And yes, it deserved the Oscar that it won yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was just so beautiful. So, so perfectly synced to everything that was happening in this movie. Yes, absolutely. Both the way that certain musical motifs kind of bubble up at certain moments for just that that right time um when there's a tender moment we get that that series of a couple of notes that we continually revisit again and again um and i think also the the alignment between the score and the cinematography and the camera pacing was really well done as well um the 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 pace a camera would move through a scene um or a space was so in line with the the atmosphere that the score is creating and that level of alignment just hits a home run with this. So the score is vital to this movie. This one, this movie would be so different um, without the score really pushing it forward and creating this, this world for us. All right, any other last thoughts about The Shape of Water before we wrap up? Okay, I have, I have two thoughts. Uh, yeah. One is a more serious thought, and then one is a Sarah couldn't get over this thought. Um, So the first is uh, just the use of color throughout was just wonderful. And one of my favorite uh, touches that we see throughout is um, in the beginning, we only see really Eliza ever wear like blues or greens. 
But then after the escape, we see her come to work wearing a pair of red shoes. And then like the, the next time we see her, it's like red shoes and a headband. And then like a little bit later, like we see her also wearing like red lipstick. And then after that, we see her in her like red coat. And so I just loved that we were able to like visually see, you know, how this character was like embracing this new side of herself uh, purely through the clothing that she was choosing to wear. And I thought that that was, that's just like one of the many examples of the way that Guillermo del Toro uses color throughout this film. Uh, But that was probably my favorite was the introduction of red into Eliza's world. Yes. The color and the use of it is is so symbolic in this movie. I loved that as well. Um, one of the ones that sticks out to me is, you know, we see her take the bus home after work a few times, first in the beginning of the film and then a few times later throughout the rest of the film. And there's a specific moment when she's really uh, had a connection and a breakthrough with the creature where I think it's the first time they're able to sign together and and connect in that way and communicate to each other. And on the bus, there's this like warm glow of orange that just begins to cover her face. And that warm tone is used a lot when she's in like the safety of Guile's apartment. And mm-hmm. this the, that warm light is streaming through, kind of this, this haven for the both of them. And you see a little bit of that, that warmth coming through in that uh, bus scene. Whereas earlier in the film, when we see her on the bus, it's a lot more of the bluer and greener tones. And so, you know, like her heart is getting to be lit up and softened and able to finally connect with someone that she feels is like her. And we see that reflected through color. So that is really, really cool. All right. And your second thing. My my second thing, thing is we know that we're in like a fantasy or a musical based solely on the apartment that she lives in because she is a cleaning lady and it's a great profession. So grateful, (laughs) grateful for the people who do that, but they don't make a lot of money, especially as a woman in the 1960s. Like she was not making bank. How could she afford that apartment? More than that, how could she afford her water bill every month? Because she uses a lot of water. I mean, she fills that tub up to the brim every single day. How can she afford that? And then when the creature comes, obviously that has to be kept full all the time. Then there's the sex scene in the water in the bathroom. That doesn't make sense. Used so much water. Like, I j- how can she afford her utility bills on top of what has to be a very expensive rent <laughs> every month on a cleaning lady salary? Make it make sense, please. This this is fair. This is a fantastical <laughs> world that we're in. But you know what? She is now efficiency. She is. And so she is yeah. not having to pay that utility bill. She didn't have to pay that so last that's good bill. timing. Yep. It was a good she, timing. She peaced out at the right time because yep. – if she hadn't, seeing that dollar amount on that bill would have killed her. So right. just, she checked the out. the equivalent of a dine and dash. <laughs> Hello. But with your water bill. Right. <laughs> but nope, she's in the ocean now. She's in the ocean, getting all the water that she can breathe. Possibly can, want. Yeah. yeah. She's yeah. just living her best life. So right. You go, Eliza. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the movie magic is real. It's real. That's Giles what I had too. To, Giles is like yeah. a a washed up artist that is looking for his next big break, but really yeah. just you know trying to sell his art and not really making too much too many deals from it. So we don't know how he's paying his bills either. Yep, and that's that is how I knew that we were in a fantasy world because <laughs> yes. there's no way they would have been able to afford those apartments in the real world. <laughs> indeed, indeed. All right. Well, this is our review and discussion of The Shape of Water. You can find it available on Hulu as part of their streaming service or available to rent on multiple streaming platforms. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Strategic Whimsy Experiment. This podcast is fueled by our passion for stories and connection and is something we continue to do each week solely because we love it. 
This is our strategic whimsy experiment, and we encourage you to find a way to infuse whimsy into your day. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you tune into your favorite shows. Drop us a review letting us know your thoughts about The Shape of Water. You can connect with us on Instagram at Strategic Whimsy Experiment, on Twitter at Strategic Whimsy, or you can email us at strategicwhimsyexperiment at gmail.com. We will be back next week to discuss the new Disney film, Turning Red. We hope you have an amazing week, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>